Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. In the 1980s and 1990s, a very strange belief swept the English-speaking world. There were widespread, mainstream concerns that a satanic cult thousands of years old was not only real, but was organized, influential, and extremely dangerous, responsible for murders and suicides and kidnappings. So where did this belief begin, and how did it find a place in modern society? Today we'll explore those questions. I do want to let everyone know up front that this episode will touch on child abuse. We won't be getting terribly specific about anything, and it's more to do with imagined threats than it is to do with specific cases, but I still thought it best not to surprise anyone with that fact, so folks who understandably prefer not to hear about such things can go ahead and just skip this episode. So with that in mind, let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Becca Blasky. Hello. How's it going? Good. It's been a while since you've been on the show. It has been a while. It's I'm, been so long that you dropped the RE at the beginning this time. You know, it just felt like it was time. Was, We've known each other long enough. Uh, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Coming up on 25 years, I'd say. <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about uh, what's known colloquially, colloquially as the satanic panic. Yeah. Which is this really interesting social phenomenon that takes place throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. And the main reason I wanted to talk about it is, you know, we, we were actually talking about doing another conspiracy theory episode. And yes. a few of the things that we were talking about covering sort of led me to this spot in terms of like uh, a topic and I realized well there's a little bit more here than just making fun of conspiracy theorists yeah. there's actually like a really interesting thing that happens in pretty much the entire English-speaking world mm -hmm. and it fascinates me because there's this tendency that we have with history to kind of try and make it as logical as possible and like make everyone in the story rational actors as much as possible and have the story, uh, you know, be as orderly as possible. And that's really kind of disingenuous to like the human experience. I was going to say, that's not really how humans work. No. And lots of times we can kind of fit it into that framework, but whether or not that's accurate to the story isn't always necessarily that clear. Especially not on a grand scheme. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And we do have these examples where, you know, kind of it's it's generally well known that sort of as society, we sort of collectively lost it a little bit. You know, yeah. things like the, the witch hunts come to mind, yes. right? Like there's this idea that, you know, yes, there are like underlying social and economic factors and there's this religious aspect to it. But like, guys, what were we even doing there, <laughs> right? 
but there's also this sense that that's really like it's way in the past right like mm-hmm. there's this cutoff line you know often kind of in the sort of an age of enlightenment sort of thing where it's like and since then we've always done everything perfectly logically yeah there's a there's a huge separation there which like, is just completely artificial and not accurate at all. So yeah. I, I was really curious to talk about this because it's a great example of a very recent event that encompasses this idea of completely irrational action. And I'm, I'm really interested by that. I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, people do big and important things for really bad reasons sometimes. That's just sort of the long and short of it. I want to be really clear, though, before we get started, that I don't want to conflate the idea of irrationality with like poor judgment or even uh, uh, malice or anything like that. I want to be very clear that everyone that we're going to talk about today has the best interests of everyone at heart and are acting accordingly. So, you know, let's let's try and keep that in mind as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting to me. Like there's 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 aspects of, of harm caused here, but like as out of hand as things are going to get, People are trying really hard to do the best thing possible. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about moral panic. It's a bit of a loaded term. Uh, both of those words have like a lot of meaning tied up in them. Mm-hmm. The idea of moral panic in like a historical context has sort of a very specific meaning. It actually um, was originally coined academically by Marshall McLuhan, who is a, a Canadian um, or was a Canadian uh, uh, academic, mainly concerned with uh, uh, mass media. Uh, the, the, he's the whole the medium is the message guy. Okay. Um, just kind of talking about the ways that mass media in the 20th century are, are kind of are shaping our lives and affecting our society. And so he coins this term in 1964 as something he's describing as a relatively new phenomenon in that while we've had things like the witch hunts, for example, in the past, uh, one thing that wide access to um, the news in particular, but other forms of mass media gives us is this ability to really amplify uh, a message to a point where maybe the reality of the situation is a lot different than what people are perceiving as the reality of the situation. And kind of tied up in all of this is is this idea of the moral panic and it's described by you know a number of different scholars as as basically what happens in a moral panic in a general sense is that there's some sort of identified threat to uh, a community like at large and it's immediately taken and sort of rejected from the community because it's a threat and in that rejection people tend to simplify it somewhat so in um, describing this threat to other people, they tend to like bring it down to like its core values. Right. So it's really easy to communicate and it's really easy to spread as an idea. But often what happens is sort of some of the nuance that's that's happening there gets lost. And oftentimes there's values that are associated with the simplified message that aren't necessarily really all that accurate to the to, to what's really happening. Right. Then what happens is that after all that nuance is lost and these new meanings are ascribed to it, the community effects change based on the perceived threat. Like the it's it's based on the level of outrage, but often it's disproportionate to the actual threat. So it's this idea of like overblowing uh, whatever the reaction is to this perceived threat. Right. So the emotion takes over and kind of overshadows the core message of what actually is the issue yeah it's an extremely emotional uh uh, reaction and it's usually in relation to things that are very important to people uh emotionally Mm -hmm. um 
then the outrages tend to kind of disappear very quickly. They kind of go as quickly as they come because so much of it is based on this communication that as soon as either the message be in Slack evidence for its validity, it'll start to disappear or another story will come along and supplant it and the original message will disappear. Or like there's so many reasons that it can just kind of vanish from the the popular consciousness that it tends to go away very quickly Mm -hmm. and people tend to talk about things like uh for example the mccarthy communism inquiries uh as a moral panic right and you know there you have this uh this fallout of the the you know anxieties over the the russians developing the new uh developing nuclear weapons and a few isolated cases of correctly identified Soviet spies in the West, and it gets blown out of proportion to this point where hundreds of people are being questioned in front of a senatorial committee over things that are actually enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, like freedom of assembly and freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And those things are being um, leveraged against people in these hearings. It it was incredibly unconstitutional. And and eventually it was pointed out as such, and the whole thing kind of crumbles, but not before it did... uh, damage to countless people's uh, careers. And one of the really interesting things to me about moral panics is that McCarthy caught communists. There were communists. He got them. Yeah. It was a small percentage of the people that he questioned, but they were there. And what that raises is the question of, is it worth it? Right. Which is a much harder question to answer because this is so emotionally charged. I mean, the idea of the specter of communism in the 1950s in the United States is you know, whether or not that's worth it is a very subjective question. And there are going to be people who say, yes, absolutely. And there's going to be people who say, of course not. It was awful. What happened? Mm -hmm. Um, Another really interesting example of a moral panic is switchblade knives. Switchblade knives were kind of coming around uh, in the the late 19th century, early 20th century is just another form of pocket knife. You Mm -hmm. know, you press a button, spring loaded, pops pops out, it locks. And it really rose to prominence actually during World War II when soldiers were bringing back Italian-made switchblade knives. Okay. Uh, you know, serving in the war, they brought them back individually as souvenirs from, from Italy. Mm-hmm. All of them were actually very poorly made, but it was kind of cool. Yeah. They got really popular in the 50s, especially with kids, you know, just like, you know, Swiss Army knives, pocket knives, things like that. Yeah. But there was a lot of concern about switchblade knives being used in gang violence, especially by uh, youth and especially by uh, ethnic minorities. Yeah. And there was, uh, you know, there was this article that was written in a very uh, uh, prominent magazine about how, um, you know, it was the weapon of choice for gangland violence and how, you know, it's one step away from a revolver and uh, it's the, you know, like it was very like inflammatory. Yeah. And people were worried about it enough that, um, you know, to, to make a long story short, the, the knives are still outlawed in, in a lot of the Western world. There's really nothing about them that's that much more dangerous than a lot of other pocket knives. The, the main thing is that you can open it one-handed. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, you can make the same argument about a lot of different pocket knives that yeah. are perfectly legal. And, and you know, when you start kind of breaking it down, it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever that they'd be outlawed. But this is, like... This is countrywide legislation, and and it, it didn't just happen in the United States. It happened in, in many countries. This is this is national level legislation against 
a very specific type of pocket knife based on an article, which, by the way, was actually written by uh, a ghostwriter for uh, U.S. government officials, um, which is kind of interesting. There's this whole like little deep state style uh, uh, backstory to the whole thing. But I mean, that's not even necessarily as important to me as uh, about this story as the fact that like we've had knives that are like outlawed for 60 years, 70 years because of a magazine article where like, you know, unnamed sources were claiming that they were parts of gangs and also use switchblade knives. Yeah. Stabbings and gang violence over the course of the 20th century dropped drastically in favor of gun violence. And, um, you know, still this knife, this one style of knife stays outlawed this whole time. And I I think a lot of people, if you ask them why it was outlawed, I I don't think they'd be able to tell you, but it, it originates in this anxiety around, uh, mainly organized crime. Yeah. Um, a lot of that has to do with crime reporting statistics um, or, or the way that crime statistics were reported, um, making it seem as though violent crime was going up uh, massively after the war. There were concerns about the civil rights movement and, and uh, greater agencies for ethnic minorities. All of this stuff ties in and it all comes back to this one knife. And it's it's just this weird little piece of history that that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Um, except in the light of this moral panic, right? Like this right. is the, that disproportionate reaction to a very emotional uh, concern about society writ large. Yes. That brings me to uh, fears about satanic cults in uh, mainly starting in the late 70s in the United States. Throughout the 70s, stories began circulating throughout um, mainly fundamental Christian communities of these satanic cults that were highly organized um, and sort of lurking behind the scenes, Illuminati style controlling things. And that part of their ritual involved um, the uh, the ritual abuse of children, um, often sexually. And there was nothing to back this up whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That being said, it doesn't come from nowhere either. That's really important to understand. Yeah. There's a few things that are happening in this era that make it seem like child abuse is is rising drastically. The, the main things that cause this are, number one, the introduction of mandatory reporting laws. Mandatory reporting laws just mean with any vulnerable community, if you see certain things uh, and you're in uh, certain authority positions, you're required by law to report it yeah. to the state. So yeah. doctors, teachers, etc. And this had actually come out uh, during the 60s because they uh, were... Well, they, they discovered shaken baby syndrome, basically. Yeah. And this is actually uh, um, related to the development of the x-ray uh, medicinally. Yeah. You can't really see the signs without x-rays. So there's like this really interesting line that goes from, you know, the development of x-ray and, and improvement of medicine to the protection of vulnerable communities to uh, um, a rise in the number of reported uh, um, cases of sexual abuse of children yeah. to this concern about uh, satanic rituals. It's a weird line and it's taken a long time for us to kind of connect those dots, but it's there. Yeah. There's also the maturation of the field of social work. So the idea of like a a properly organized state run child protective services is, is coming about in the sixties, partially because of these mandatory, uh, reporting laws. You've also got the development of psychology as, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of coming into its own in this period. We're going to run into a lot of psychological problems here yeah. um, that we'll, we'll talk about as we, as we go. Um, but 
all of this turns into a system of people who are very concerned with doing the right thing by children, but don't necessarily have the best tools with which to do it. Right. Um, and that's on the state side. On the community side, you have these communities of, of people who are extremely concerned about not just the, the physical well-being of the children, but also the spiritual well-being of them. Um, this is what I'm talking about when I say that everyone is very concerned with doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, this is also a recipe for extremely emotional reactions and very understandably so. Yes. You also have the sort of rise of actual real cults in the 70s and 60s. Um, you know, the, the Jonestown Massacre had occurred in 1978. I was, uh, you know, nearly a thousand people were were killed at, at Jonestown. And that was actually the largest uh, single loss of American lives until September 11th. Um, it was a, a massive tragedy and and very much in the the national psyche. But, you know, it's it's also not the only cult that had come up in this time period. There were a rash of very charismatic leaders who uh, did very terrible things to very vulnerable people. And so there's this, this real vigilance towards the possibility of people close to you becoming involved in cults. Right. And from there, it's only like one step away to get to this whole Satanism thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, in 1966, the Church of Satan was founded. Oh, good. Which is an actual organization. It's actually it's, it's a very interesting organization, actually, if you read up a little bit on on what they stand for. Um, they're mainly actually a, a atheistic organization. They're mm. not claiming to worship the devil as he appears in the Bible. It's it's uh, and and. You know, for for all the um, very controversial and, and confrontational methods that they use, um, they tend to seem kind of committed towards social progress. So I don't know. That being said, when someone goes and founds a literal church of Satan, there's some cause for concern there. Slightly questionable. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, today you and I could go and Google Church of Satan and read about the Church of Satan from them and read about them from many other sources and kind of form our own opinions. It isn't really an era where you can get that kind of information on what was actually a fairly small group with a very scary name. Yeah, not without going and experiencing it, which are you going most to people risk are going to be like, no, thank you. Yeah, no kidding. All of these things continue to feed into this whole narrative of these, these satanic orders. I also want to talk about, very briefly, a growing understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder. You have a lot of veterans coming home from Vietnam uh, with these uh, these terrible psychological issues that are kind of on a scale that we haven't really seen since World War II at this point, but also World War II, uh, for various reasons, was much it, it was much less public the the sort of trauma that these soldiers went through mm -hmm. also there are some people and and this is more controversial but there are there are some historians who have uh argued that the type of combat experienced in world war ii was somewhat less traumatizing than what people went through in vietnam mm -hmm. um again very controversial it's it's yeah. kind of hard to rank things like that but yeah, yeah. the fact is this is now uh, an identified phenomenon that people are are beginning to understand exactly there's a name for it now which can help mm -hmm. you know the whole and so many people know knowledge of it yeah so many people know people personally who are affected by this that mm -hmm. it becomes a very a uh, very public thing. Uh, it's it's a very uh, top of mind sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And with PTSD goes um, some of the more 
uh, sort of stereotypical um, symptoms of PTSD, like uh, um, you know, flashbacks, this idea of, of uh, having real problems processing these traumatic memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that, which is that uh, occasionally under moments of extreme trauma, your mind can just straight up not file memories. Yeah, you yeah. will selectively have amnesia about events, and sometimes it'll come back later, and sometimes it will never come back. And so these, specifically these memory issues that go along with PTSD, are are something that the public is becoming more familiar with. But from a medical psychological standpoint, they're not terribly well understood at this point in time. Mm-hmm. In the middle of all of this, a book is published. It's called Michelle Remembers. It's published in 1980 by uh, a Canadian psychologist, uh, Lawrence Pazder. And uh, this book is based on a patient of his named Michelle Smith. And it's written from an autobiographical standpoint. Smith had started seeing uh, Pazder after going through a a miscarriage and and having a lot of depression associated with that. And uh, as they they worked together, uh, Pazder believed that he detected some uh, PTSD-related uh, uh, amnesia, basically, some some missing memories. Okay. And there was a prevalent theory at the time that these memories, you, you'll sometimes hear them called repressed memories, could actually be recovered through uh, through therapy. And this was a fairly old idea, but, you know, it wasn't something that's terribly well understood at this point in time. Um, so we began working with Michelle to try and recover whatever it was that was sort of at the root of, uh, of some of her issues. Right. And through a series of, of uh, sessions over years, what came out was a story of uh, Michelle having been uh, abused by her mother when she was a child and that her mother was part of this satanic cult and that as part of her membership in the cult, um, these rituals were performed on Michelle at, age four or five kind of thing. And the book is extremely detailed. It goes into all sorts of like very, very specific things. And it was a a massive bestseller, mainly because it was sensational, but partly because it played into this narrative that had been going around this sort of fundamental Christian community for a long time now. It was like, this is the smoking gun. This is the proof that exactly what we've been talking about is true, is real. Right. And so it, it blows up. It's a phenomenon. This book has been thoroughly debunked since. I should probably get that out of the way more or less right away um, for a number of reasons. But that's going to be another 10, 12 years after the publication. And so there is a very long period of time in here where this seems very plausible, very real. I'm going to talk about sort of, you know, American society as a very monolithic thing in this in this show. I should be clear that not even close to everyone actually believes all of the things that we're going to be talking about. It's just that there are enough people who believe it that they are going to be driving some actual change in society. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're when you're talking about anything, especially to do with children, even if you don't necessarily believe things outright, there's a lot of doubt that goes into your mind, especially if you're a parent of children yourself. Um, you don't really want to risk something like a satanic cult, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, vulnerable groups always were programmed to protect yeah, of course. vulnerable groups. So as soon as it comes to mm-hmm. like children or anything like that, it's 
you're going to be on high alert. Yeah, definitely. And and this is this is what I was trying to get across at the beginning where it's like this is not anyone's fault really. Yeah. yeah. Um there are a few people, a very small number of individuals in this story that I'm going to look at later and kind of go like, "Come on, what were you doing here?" But this overall movement is a very very understandable thing. And it's not going to be based in anything at all at the end of the day. Yeah. But there are a good 12 or 15 years here where starting with this book and moving forward, there are there there is a significant percentage of the population that honestly believes that there are as many as a million Americans who are a part of the secret satanic cult that is a worldwide thing. Yeah. And they are performing rituals they are murdering people they are kidnapping children all of this terrible stuff and they believe they are organized and powerful yeah that's terrifying yeah if you are genuinely of the mind that this is happening you have to be terrified like and it doesn't even necessarily matter whether you believe like the metaphysical implications of it sure um, you don't necessarily yourself have to believe in those things to believe that other people believe them and are willing yeah. to act in an evil way on those beliefs. That's true. Yes. So there, there's that which massively helps the widespread adoption of this idea. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying stuff. Yeah. There's one more event that really drives a lot of this stuff. In 1983, it's known as the McMartin Preschool Trial. There is a teacher at a, a, a well, McMartin Preschool uh, who's accused of uh, abusing his son by his extra- his estranged wife. And because he's a teacher at a preschool, um, basically the police send out a letter to every the parents of every child who has ever been taught by this teacher, which is hundreds of children over the years. And basically the police ask parents to talk to their children about whether anything has ever happened to them. Which is understandable, but it's also under, it's also really important to understand that children are a very vulnerable group when it comes to questioning, especially of this nature. Children like doing what you want them to do, and if you ask questions in the wrong sorts of way, you can get answers that aren't necessarily truthful. Yeah. The investigation was understandably incredibly zealous. The investigators went off went after every single lead they could possibly find. And they would ask, not not just the police, but also lawyers involved and social workers involved, would ask extremely leading coercive questions. They would reward any uh, information that the kids would give. And anytime they weren't interested in giving any information about this teacher, um, they were not necessarily punished, but they were disincentivized from speaking that way. Right. Which is a dangerous thing. In the end, more than 360 students claimed to have been affected by this teacher in one way or another. Pazner and Smith uh, actually were consulted as experts during this trial, as experts on this, uh, what's what's known as satanic ritualized abuse. Okay. Um, because the belief, based on you know these rumors that were going around, this book in particular, was that not only was this teacher abusing children, but he was doing so as part of this group. And it was seen as like this crack into finally, you know, breaking this thing wide open. Yeah. Eventually, zero concrete evidence was found. Uh, anything that the kids said was investigated intensely and nothing was ever found to back up anything. There Out was no physical evidence. Correct. Accusations. 
No con- no convictions resulted, although the teacher did spend a total of five years in jail over the course of the trial, which took seven years to conduct. Yeah. Um, the mother who made the initial accusations was schizophrenic. She was delusional. Okay. Her child was experiencing some discomfort, and she spun it wildly out of proportion. Uh, she would die of alcohol uh, poisoning in 1986 before the trial was complete. Um it's an incredibly sad story. Yeah. This is also kind of linked into another like broad social phenomenon of households with uh, more than one parent working. More and more people were sending their kids to preschool. And there's this anxiety about that, right? Like they're not with their parents. Yeah. Over 100 preschools would see similar scandals over the course of the 80s in the United States, um, most of which did not result in conviction. Now, if you did, I mean, bad things happen. Most of them did not see convictions. Right. Most of the trials were also leveled at male teachers. That I have seen linked to sort of societal concerns about uh, homosexuality. There's a lot of really broad stuff that kind of all gets pulled in here. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sucks because, again, you see all of these people who are trying to do the best thing that they can for kids. And it's it's rough to see people whose lives are affected in really difficult and kind of irreparable ways by all of this. But at the same time, what are you supposed to do? Let it go? Yeah. You, you can't. You, you can't. can't. You have to follow up on it. This kind of peaked in 1987 where uh, Geraldo Rivera alleged in a TV special that there were more than a million Satanists in the United States. And this is the kind of thing that they got up to, et cetera, et cetera. But like, this was on like national television. This is on like, this is very mainstream messaging. Mm -hmm. And you have a very trusted news source saying there are Satanists. There are more than a million Satanists and they're dangerous. Let's switch topics for a while because this sucks. Yes. (laughs) Let's rewind to 1966. Okay. Once upon a time, in 1966, John Lennon smoked some weed. Right. And he uh, was working on a song. It's called Rain. Yep. And he accidentally loaded the tape backwards. Yep. And he went, this sounds amazing. Probably smoked more than just just a little weed. (laughs) I said some weed, not a little weed. Fair. Probably smoked more than just some weed. No comment. Um, I mean, their producer, George Martin, would also claim that he was the one that came up with the idea for running the tape backwards. He sure. said that, you know, the band was playing with things like the, you know, running spe- uh, different speeds and playing yeah. backwards and stuff like that. Yeah. I like the first version better. I'm going to yeah. stick with that one. Sure. And I mean, if you listen to Rain today, like the last 30 seconds has back masked vocals. That's when you run a, a, a music tape, like the electric, uh, the uh, magnetic tape backwards through the player. It sounds weird and kind of, kind of trippy yeah i mean this was like the main the first like mainstream uh use of it it's certainly not the first time somebody thought of it no i mean as early as edison you know working on like the first phonograph was talking about what happens when you turn the cylinder backwards and kind of described it as sort of this this kind of oddly melodious but sort of haunting sound Mm -hmm. but you know no one really did a whole lot with it you get People like Aleister Crowley, you know, the famed mystic, talking about uh, one of the ways to expand your mind for, like, uh, mystical purposes was to spin your records backwards to, like, you know, free yourself from the constraints of time as being a linear concept. Right. And, like, all this, like, okay. Sure. All right. If you say so. (laughs) Yeah. And then there was this movement in the 40s and 50s of um, 
it was basically an early electronic music scene right where it's like the idea of like a, a magnetic tape machine as a recording medium was finally like really accessible and and by really accessible i mean like giant and clumsy and only in recording studios but still accessible enough that people could experiment with the technology of it yeah. and not just use it as a passive recording medium yeah and so people were playing with this stuff and the Beatles were absolutely aware of this scene and trying to sort of incorporate it as they kind of expanded their sound a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. People love this song. You know what? As far as Beatles songs go. eh. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about playing some clips and then I realized like the fastest way I can think of for me personally to get sued is to put some Beatles music in this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. Um, So, you know what? Just go to YouTube and type it it on in there. You'll find it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, the next step in the whole backmasking saga is also tied to the Beatles. There's this interesting rumor that comes up in 1969 that Paul McCartney had died. Oh, yeah. Not only had he died, but he had died two years earlier. And that for the past two years, uh, he had been replaced by a lookalike, a winner of a lookalike contest named William Campbell. Yeah. Paul is dead. He died in a car accident in late 66, early 67. And this is William Campbell now. A lot of this is fueled by the fact that the Beatles were about to break up and Paul was very reclusive at the time. He Mm -hmm. was kind of taking some time off, talking about starting a a solo career, all of that stuff. But it was sort of this, I I guess you could call it a meme that was floating around like a lot of university campuses. Yeah. Honestly, stuff like this still comes up today. I don't know if you've heard, but Avril Lavigne is apparently dead. Yeah, I think Miley Cyrus too. Oh yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, I love those because it's always like, look at these two photos that were taken at different angles in different lighting. Their nose looks different. They have a different haircut. It's been 12 years. They <laughs> are wearing different makeup and maybe their weight has changed like slightly. Yeah, just enough. Um, anyways, the interesting thing here is, again, media plays a big part in it in that the the rumor was very underground for a long time until a radio DJ picks it up. And he was working for a radio station in New York that had like a really long broadcast range. Like this could be heard in, it was over 30 states. People right. were listening into this, this, uh, this program. And he had a, a, he had a university student named Tom call in and tell him that if you listen to the song revolution nine backwards, it's a really weird song, but like at one point they just repeat over and over again, number nine, number nine, number nine. And if you play that backwards, you could hear, apparently, uh, it would say, turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. You can, again, go and Google any of this stuff and uh, listen to it for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's this really interesting phenomenon. People are really keyed into finding patterns, which is part of the reason that the whole, you know, satanic uh, cult thing happens as well, right? Like you're looking for some sort of broader framework to fit in these disparate uh, events. Mm. The same thing happens on a really micro level here where if someone tells you that you're about to hear this thing, you're going to hear it. It's It's called priming. And it's part of what's known as the observer expectancy effect. If you're expecting to hear something, if you're expecting to find a pattern in something that does not have patterns you'll probably find it. Yeah. And if the thing you're listening to has already been sorted into like the category of someone heard a pattern here, you're definitely going to hear it. Yeah. This happens like even at work, uh, my one coworker, 
she hears songs wrong all the time right. and she'll say what she think it is, what she thinks it is. Yeah. And then whenever I hear that song, I'm like, oh yeah, she thinks it's this. And then I hear that for the rest of the song, even though I know what it is. Yeah. You're just tuned into what you're supposed to think it is based on what somebody else said. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting thing, but it's very easy to kind of, uh, uh, fall into like I, I'll, I'll play something for us uh, you know shortly here but mm-hmm. this this radio dj russ gibb um his his listeners started messaging in like more tips on this thing that he was calling the the great cover-up of paul's death okay. and they all these all these well, all these teens sat down and started playing their tapes through backwards all of their beatles tapes trying to find more evidence that paul is dead mm-hmm. and they get to a song called i'm so tired yeah and uh someone hears when you play it backwards, Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him. And people just go wild for this. Like, again, yeah. it's it's basically a meme. Um, and the idea of these messages hidden in music backwards kind of blows up. Like, it's, it's a thing with rock fans. They'll yeah. go listening to their favorite albums, trying to find things backwards. Yeah. Now, this has the same problem as basically any other meme, which is it's really hard to say how many people actually believe it and how many people are just having some fun with it yeah this yeah. is the exact problem that comes up with like the the ted cruz is a serial killer thing oh, which is probably it. my favorite meme of 2016 loved it do i think the t- ted cruz is actually a serial killer of course not of course not specifically the zodiac killer specifically the zodiac killer of course he's not no i don't think that however i don't know if anyone does think that i feel like there is a very small number of people out there who do believe it there have to be like people will believe anything there has to be a small number of people that actually believe that (laughs) i just love the idea that people think it could be him yeah they they but anyways back back to the back to the back back masking thing you can hear backwards stuff in basically anything Mm -hmm. especially if you're looking for it and they've done experiments where they've uh run basically everything backwards they'll run bible verses backwards and people will hear things in it uh i want to play one for us and what i'm gonna do is i'm just gonna play it first and we'll we'll see if you can tell what it says and then i'm gonna tell you what it says and we'll listen to it a second time okay okay Okay, do you have any idea what that was supposed to be at the end i heard space foam space foam okay or phone maybe no it's neither of those things okay so first of all that clip is from neil armstrong's very famous like moon landing one small step for man thing Mm -hmm. and you know the story behind that is pretty well known he basically made it up as he was landing the thing um and you know didn't pronounce it properly and there's all sorts of stuff that goes into it it's a poor recording and all of that That backwards bit said, and or I've seen it claimed said, uh, man will spacewalk. It's a prophecy that's built into it. Now, we'll listen to it one more time, and let's see if you can hear man will spacewalk. Very clearly said in this. So what do you think? I mean, yeah, in a very distorted way, but you can make yourself hear it. Right. right? So it's really interesting. Yeah. And there's there's so many examples out there. I, I yeah. there there was this old like defunct website that like I had to pull like the internet archive on called talkbackwards.com that nice. just had like all of these files of 
backwards talking. Mm-hmm. And um, that that was one of the ones I found on there that was kind of like, okay, well, if it's in here, like it's, it can be pretty much anywhere. Yeah. In 1973, a uh, movie comes out. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Exorcist. Yep. And in The Exorcist, at one point, they you know they're they're recording the interviews with this possessed child, and at one point they run the the tape backwards, and it's got you know demonic messages backwards in the tapes. Again, this is just a movie, but there's certain groups who really take their cue from this to some extent, and obviously the the. Uh, um, inspiration from this comes from this mu- movement of people trying to find messages backwards in rock music. Yeah. I mean, rock music itself has this already long history of like questionable morality. Yeah. Like just look at Elvis being shown from the waist up because his yeah. hips were just too much for society. Ooh. Just too much. And again, you know, with rock and roll, it ties into, um, you know, anything that the youth are into, basically, like anything yeah. new, any new trends. Uh, it also ties into um, some, you know, racial issues. It ties in like, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, kids have been doing things that parents find um, questionable and potentially morally bankrupt for time immemorial. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite facts about Julius Caesar is that he invented a new way to wear his toga when he was a young Senator Mm -hmm. and it just outraged all the old senators loosely belting your toga, Julius Caesar. My God, how racy. Listen, Julius Caesar was a fashion icon and don't let anyone else tell you (laughs) anything different. He wore red high top sandals actually Mm -hmm. uh in the style of his ancestors people think it might have been because he had varicose veins that he was uh he was uh kind of yeah uh he also wore his like senatorial crown all the time people think maybe because he was going bald (laughs) uh fashion icon of course just accessorize (laughs) just accessorize um yeah no no it's yeah, rock music is already complicated enough. Uh, you've got the Rolling Stones who seem incredibly dangerous throughout the 60s. Mm-hmm. You get into the 70s and all of a sudden there's Led Zeppelin, there's Pink Floyd, there's all of yeah. this stuff that like make the Beatles seem very wholesome. Yeah, very tame. And there's a lot of community leaders who are like newly concerned about this new type of rock and roll. And again, it bleeds back into that evangelical fundamentalist Christian tradition where you have Christian rock DJs who are going into these rock uh, uh, records, playing the backwards, trying to find evidence of satanic messages. And again, this is all part of this uh, in the 70s underlying message of these satanic uh, uh, cults. But they're going into, for example, uh, Stairway to Heaven in 1981 is the most famous example. Uh, a DJ goes in and says that there's, it's actually a fairly long section that he says is all, uh, is all a message. And when you, when you listen to it with like the words right in front of you, you can hear it. But again, that's that priming, right? Like that's that yeah, expected observance. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily pick it up on your own. Yeah. And supposedly, you know, it starts off with, oh, my sweet Satan. And it's got the, you know, it's got 666 in it and it's got like, it's all of this stuff. And people were, they were scared. They were really scared of this. Mm -hmm. And given the climate, it's very understandable. Yeah, of course. Now, you know, Led Zeppelin was kind of going like, what are you guys talking about? This is, this is ridiculous. Here's the other thing about backmasking. It's almost impossible to plan words 
um, that will show up as backmasked. So the main difference between what's happening in um, Rain, in the Beatles song, and what's happening in Stairway to Heaven is Rain, they intentionally reversed it for like a stylistic effect. Yeah. Stairway to Heaven, they just sang a song and people went through backwards and feel like they can hear stuff in it. Yeah. It's a very different thing. And to plan that out so that you say something forwards and then listening to it backwards sounds like actual words is next to impossible. Yeah. It's just not how sound works, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you have all these rock stars who are just going like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. And you have all of these community leaders going, obviously, that's what they would say because they're in cahoots with the Satanists trying to influence our children through this music. There's another really interesting psychological thing that's going on in this time period, which is this idea of subliminal messaging, mm -hmm. this idea that your brain can take in information that you're not consciously aware that you're taking in. This is an incredibly um, complicated and incredibly controversial idea. Basically, from my limited understanding where things lie in general with subliminal messaging is it's possible to suggest to somebody uh, that they do something they were kind of already planning to do. Okay. Kind of like hypnosis. Right. Um, and you can shape that to an extent. For example, there are studies where people who are already thirsty can be convinced to drink a certain brand of soda. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to drink anything. Yeah. That's the level of manipulation we're talking about here. Yeah, it's here. a very small scale. It's led to, um, you know, legislation, for example, in the UK, you are not allowed to put any subliminal messaging in uh, commercials. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it really doesn't do much of anything, even though there are a lot of, like, urban myths around it. What these people are suggesting, uh, suggesting about music is that not only are the messages subliminal, but that your brain has the ability to reverse that sound in your head and hear these subliminal messages and be influenced by them all without you realizing it. That's complicated. It's impossible. I have no problems going on the record just saying that is not a thing that can happen. <laughs> that's that's too much to expect your brain to do. Yeah. But what's happening in this era is there's this concern about this very organized satanic organization but also a lot of questions about like, but how do you actually like get into that? Like, how are they attracting people? Yeah. They're, they're secretive. They're, you know, we can't find any evidence of them. How are they getting people? And this idea of influencing young people, again, a very vulnerable population mm -hmm. is really concerning. Yeah. There's a real fear that rock stars are Satanists and they are recruiting yeah. through their music. Right. ACDC got uh, uh, sued over a supposed backwards message on their record Highway to Hell. Their response was, did you listen to the forward message? It's called Highway to I Hell. I was going to say, is the forward not enough? <laughs> All of this is like leading to like record burning parties and oh. like pamphlets going out. Um, it's, it's like Arkansas and California both try passing legislation in 1983 to label uh, records with subliminal messages backwards. Neither of them passed, but like there's actual real attempts to legislate this. Yeah. Most heavy metal bands are accused of such practices because you get that very 70s like just put a devil head on the on the front. Yeah. Here's, here's a bunch of demons. Look at us. We're hardcore. Yeah. Which honestly, I kind of wonder how much of it is actually in a direct response to this, like these societal concerns. Yeah, but, just lean into it. But you know what? Like it made them a real target. 
Yeah, these groups were very concerned. They were taking it very seriously. In retrospect, very funny. At the time, I kind of understandable, you know? Oh, yeah. Judas Priest is my favorite response of any band uh, when they were accused. Now, the, so the circumstances under which they were accused is incredibly sad. There were two young men um, who uh, had a suicide pact. They both committed suicide and were both known to listen to Judas Priest. And uh, that's incredibly tragic and it's very understandable why their parents would be looking for some sort of any sort of explanation yeah um but despite that when judas priest was accused of putting messages in their music encouraging these these kids to commit suicide basically the band said that like why would we try to get our fans to kill themselves like that's not only very sad, but like kind of counterproductive. It's not and if gonna we, do them any favors to and, lose their yeah, and income. Well, and and they actually said like if we knew how to put subliminal messages into our music, we'd probably put something like please buy more of our albums. Yeah. <laughs> um so where does this go? Where does this whole craze go? Interestingly enough, um a lot of the decline is tied to the rise of the CD. It's really hard to run a CD backwards. Yeah. You actually see another little bit of a blip of popularity in like the late 90s when free audio software, stuff like Audacity comes out that makes it really easy to flip things backwards again. But like the technology is very closely tied to it. Yeah. And as people use less and less records, which you can run backwards, but like you have to disengage a drive belt and all of this or magnetic tape, which, you know, as it turns into cassettes, gets really hard to run backwards as that stuff goes away and it goes to CDs. It basically just kind of goes away. Yeah. And that's the thing about moral panics, right? They just sort of go away Mm -hmm. once there's a a lack of drive. So we know that's not how the Satanists are getting people. Yeah. There's got to be another way. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we're going to talk Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, nice. Back on HI101 with Becca Blasky. Hello. And we're going to talk a little bit about tabletop role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons. Now, I, I mean, to, to be clear, we're using Dungeons & Dragons as a stand, uh, stand-in for a bunch of different like fantasy role-playing games that kind of mm-hmm. crop up in the 70s and 80s because it gets really popular. And given the climate that we've been talking about so far in this episode, really scary. Yeah. People are very concerned about it. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, invented in 1974 by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Gary Gygax has the greatest name. Such a satisfying name. Somebody to invent Dungeons and Dragons. I feel like you couldn't make that up any better than Gary Gygax. Gary Gygax. That's fun to say, too. Isn't it, though? It's very good. And Dungeons and Dragons was revolutionary i think is fair to say it is just a game it's you know I, I get it it's not like it's changing the world but there hadn't really been a game before dungeons and dragons that asked the people playing to role play to step into the role of the, the uh, like a character that they're pretending to be in this game space mm-hmm. so like i don't know how much explanation dungeons dungeons and dragons really needs anymore like i feel like it's entered the public consciousness enough but basically you know you're you're you pick out a character that is you know a wizard or a fighter or you know any one of a number of different classes of characters and and uh you you go through an adventure that somebody is is kind of helping you through and you 
perform actions and you roll dice to see whether or not those actions succeed or fail. And it's a really good time. I've played the game. I've played the game with actually a lot of people who have been on this podcast. It's a lot closer to collaborative storytelling than it is snakes and ladders. Mm. And when you get the right group of people, it can be a lot of fun. And when you get the wrong group of people, it can be really terrible. Yeah. But you know, it's the way stuff like this goes sometimes. Um, I think, I think today with video games and the way the video games have gone, a lot of the concepts of Dungeons and Dragons seem a lot more familiar than they would have in the mid seventies. Yeah. I don't know when your other option is like Candyland or whatever. It's pretty out there. Yeah. That being said, Given the climate that we've talked about and just the timing that this game comes out, as well as that factor of like kids doing something that parents don't understand, there's immediately a ton of concern around this game. Mm -hmm. The first version of this game, you know, there's there's this big book of all the various creatures that you can fight and sort of the the uh, cosmology of the world and things like that. And. In this game, there are demons and you can summon demons if you perform certain rituals and things like that. And Mm -hmm. the level to which you actually have to go through any sort of steps is, you know, it it depends on how the game is run. But like a lot of times it's just I roll to summon summon a demon and you roll the dice and you either do or you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, if you're a parent who is you know one minute reading about these supposed satanic cults and then the next minute hearing your kids talking about summoning demons over in the kitchen while they're just kind of playing with their friends like yeah that gives you pause yeah for sure of course it does there's these concerns that the game is priming these kids to uh be more receptive towards ideas like witchcraft and satanism it there's this idea that it might actually be teaching them rituals in sort of like a like a rehearsal sort of way that at some point they could perform in reality again looking back it feels a little bit ridiculous but you know putting yourself in that place yikes yeah in 1982 uh, a young man named uh irving pulling uh committed suicide he had been terribly depressed but he also happened to play dungeons and dragons at school uh, his mother, Patricia, was, again, so very understandably uh, distraught and looking for some sort of sense in all of this. And she decided that it was the game's fault. Um, once again, this is 1982. Um, Michelle Remembers has come out. This concern is in full swing. Uh, concerns about D&D are in full swing. It's kind of understandable that she would latch onto this. She tried suing the principal for allowing a space in which children could play Dungeons and Dragons, alleging that he was basically part of the satanic conspiracy. Uh, she also sued the the company that makes the game. Um, both were thrown out, kind of understandably. Yeah. And uh, she went on to found uh, a group called Bad, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So it's just like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but instead of Mad, it's Bad. Yeah. And for a very long time, it was a one-person advocacy group. Okay. It's kind of funny. It's very sad. But she campaigned very hard against this game. She truly believed that this was the contributing factor to her son's death. Yeah. And she made waves. She, you know, she got people to listen to her. Uh, and and um, this sort of vague unease with the game started really hitting a fever pitch after... 
Bad was founded. Then you get a a few other events come up. There was a a man named William uh, Schnobelin who claimed to be a reformed satanic priest. This guy, I have very little time for because it looked like he was trying to get on TV to me, honestly. Yeah. He claimed to be a reformed satanic and uh, uh, Wiccan priest. uh, And he claimed that the game uh, and the portrayal of rituals in the game were accurate to actual satanic rituals. Published a bunch of articles claiming all of this. Published articles claiming that the creators of the game had come to various Satanists trying to make sure that the rituals were as accurate as possible and that he had at one point consulted on this. Sure. Um, Which, again, they vigorously denied because that is made up and never happened. Yeah. But again, you're you're, you're muddying these waters for people who are like very concerned about their families and their children and really not sure what the best thing to do is. Yeah. The idea that people were not allowed to play Dungeons & and Dragons because of this is the most understandable thing in the world. That doesn't surprise me at all. No. Then you get a book called Mazes and Monsters. This is written by uh, Rona Jeff, and it's based on a real event. There's a young man named James Dallas Egbert III uh, who attempted suicide in 1979. He was at school. He was about 16 at the time. And his school had these tunnels underneath like a uh, uh, sort of drainage um uh like like uh runoff uh tunnels right. he had gone down there to attempt suicide and he, he failed but he ended up hiding out at a friend's house for about a month afterwards and uh obviously there was a giant search for him and uh his friends lied about where he was because well he asked them to and that's the sort of thing that teens do sure. and So there was this massive manhunt through these caves. And during this hunt, the investigator claimed to the media, or speculated, I should say, to the media, that what had happened was uh, James had suffered some sort of psychotic break while LARPing under the school. LARPing is is live action role playing, this idea that you're actually acting out what's happening in something like Dungeons and Dragons, whereas Dungeons and Dragons just happens around a table. He had nothing to base this on, nothing at all. Uh, Egbert hadn't even really played Dungeons and Dragons from what we could tell. Yeah. Um, but the media loved this and they absolutely ran with it because hating on role-playing games was huge at the time and it was a really juicy angle, this idea that, you know, he had sort of lost touch with reality and run off. Yeah. Um, horrible, but brings in the views. Uh, just like a lot of other things with this whole moral panic theme. Yeah. Egbert was eventually found, but he uh, he successfully committed suicide a year later. Uh, it's it's extremely tragic. The, um, the book Mazes of Monsters was fictional, but it's based extremely heavily on these events. And uh, the book actually got turned into a, uh, a made-for-TV movie uh, by the same name, starring Tom Hanks. It's like oh. his first acting gig. Wow. I've seen it. It is so bad is and it? very funny. Um, the conceit of the whole thing is that like all the cool kids at school play Dungeons Dra- or sorry, Mazes and Monsters, not Dungeons and Dragons. That gets you sued. Careful. <laughs> yeah, like he's at he's at like a party, like first week of college, and there's like the jock and the cheerleader, and they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna go play some Mazes and Monsters later. You want to come?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know if I should do that. It's it is buck wild. We should watch it sometime. Of course." I can't believe we haven't yet. Yeah, it's 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 something else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the book and the movie both get really, really big to the point that the investigator on the Egbert case came forward and said, like, listen, I never should have said that. Like, he published a book. Like, there was nothing to do with role-playing involved in that case. It was the case of a, a, a tragically depressed young man. Um, and I I should never have said that. That's and impressive. Yeah, it was, I mean, for as much damage as he did by making that statement to to work that hard to try and retract it is is there's that's big yeah there's something to be said for that um he was he was very disturbed by the whole thing i think but you know this this all feeds into this idea of like this break from reality this this psychotic episode that can be induced by uh, uh playing the game and that then links into all these fears of satanism and there's there's this sense that somehow role playing can not only prime you for these rituals but can also affect you uh psychologically to the point that you can essentially lose your mind and become subject to these satanic forces it's sort of a weird modern day possession kind of narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, and once again, within the environment, uh, is incredibly scary. Looking back is kind of hard to buy, but again, you know, I don't have a kid where I'm hearing this on the news every day, so I can't really speak to that. Yeah. Looking through that lens is a lot different. Yeah. Um, there's a number of high-profile crimes with very tenuous links to the game throughout the 80s, increasing fears. There's specifically like a case of a young man who conspired with a couple of his friends to uh, murder a stepfather. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And and it's like, it reminds me actually a lot of some of the very early like video game violence uh, concerns yeah. where you have, you know, kids making maps of their school in, in doom and that's going to get you expelled because mm -hmm. it's, you know, a post Columbine world and yeah. yikes. Yeah. So Dungeons and Dragons itself goes through a couple of revisions to try and clean up its image a little bit, take some of the demons out of the books, mm -hmm. things like that. And you know, in terms of how this particular one ends, again, don't have a real good ending on it, right? For one thing, time breeds familiarity. More people, you know, came into contact with the game and realized like, oh, this is a bunch of nerds playing a game that involves like half math, half improv. Yeah. This is not dangerous. No. Um, there's also a number of people who very vigorously de uh, uh, defend the game uh, publicly. Um, specifically, there was a journalist and sci-fi author, uh, Michael Stackpole, who uh, wrote all these articles basically proving that in general, role players tend to have healthier uh, uh, social relationships. They tend to have uh, fewer instances of mental illness. They tend to have like happier lives, things like that. Um, meanwhile, um, uh, Patricia Pulling is going on the news and claiming that, you know, as many as 8% of people are Satanists. Yeah. And when she gets pushed on that, like, well, how did you get that number? Her claim is, well, I estimated that 4% of adults and 4% of teenagers are Satanists. So I added them together and I got 8%. And the interviewer will go like, but that's still 4%. Like, that's not how percentages work. <laughs> and she goes, well, whatever. I still think 8% is conservative. That's not a convincing argument, right? No. And again, I, I understand that she was a, you know, a hurt woman, but, yeah. uh, you know, that's not, it, it, it just, it feeds into this panic in a, in a very, um, uh, like, 
in a in a very harmful way. There are numerous studies by you know psychologists, educators, uh, even legislators into hey, is there any problems with D and D? The game is like taken apart by uh, experts in you know uh, education and, and child development and things like that. And generally, they find zero correlation between playing the game and any harmful behaviors or tendencies. Like there isn't even like a general trend mm -hmm. really. Um, eventually, Stackpole publishes what's called the pulling report in 1989, kind of summarizing all of these findings of nothing at all. Uh, and, and basically saying like, leave the game alone already. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, that was the end of it. Um, pulling would die in 1997 and bad was basically, uh, over as soon as she died. You know, she had other people working at the organization by then, but she was really the driving force there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think mainly it's just this familiarity with it, with what exactly is going on there, as, as well as the somewhat dying down concern over this uh, yeah. satanic craze. Yeah. So okay, D and D's not bringing them in. Backwards or the backmasking rock music isn't bringing them in. This is all part of kind of a bigger trend of like no one, no one really being able to figure out where the satanists are, where the satanists at. Yeah. Um, Where is their headquarters, please? Well, and that's the problem, right? Like, there's all these these claims of there being, you know, over a million Satanists in the United States, but nobody knows any of them. And no one can find any of how them. How do I specifically contact them to ask them to please stop? Because I'm scared. <laughs> please leave me alone. Please move somewhere else. Not in my backyard. <laughs> the failure, the failure of the McMartin preschool trial to draw any conviction whatsoever out of you know, over 300 counts, mm -hmm. um, led to a lot of public doubt about dangers of preschools in general. That being said, you've got to remember that that trial went from 1983 to 1990. Yeah. It took seven years to resolve. That's a long time for something like that to be up in the air in a way that is going to be scaring literally everyone with children. Yeah. And again, it's not every single parent. There are lots of people who looked at this and went, listen, this is getting blown out of proportion. We're all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. That's not to negate all the fears of people who do have very real, real concerns here. Mm -hmm. in, in the trial specifically, as emotions about the whole thing died down, testimony from the children becomes less and less compelling. You know, there's a lot of instances where the children t are, are talking to investigators about, you know, things they've seen or experienced that, you know, should, you know, either have like very clear corroborating evidence that just simply doesn't exist. You know, there's stories about, again, tunnels under the school that uh, there are just aren't any. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they, they just aren't. Story over. Um, there were stories about, uh, you know, some of the children told stories about seeing witches fly through the sky, which, you know, led to this satanic uh, uh, fear about the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um, there was a whole rabbit hole that everyone goes down at one point that it turns out that there was a just a just schoolyard chant. You know, kids make up these weird rhymes all the yeah. time, right? One of the rhymes was "What you say is what you are." You're a naked movie star, just teasing each other. Yeah. And there's this concern about you know children being exploited for pornography, which is again they're talking about naked movie star and they chase that, of yeah. course, of yeah. course, and and that turns out to be nothing. Yeah. And a really interesting thing about the whole thing is that. In the course of the trial, any time the jury is shown a recording or hear a recording of the testimony from the children, they don't believe it. 
and it's not because they just straight up don't believe the kids it's that it's it's very shaky like yeah. at best it mostly just sounds like kids saying the kind of stuff the kids say when they're making stuff up yeah and a lot of it can be explained away by very innocuous uh uh explanations mm -hmm. because nothing happened to these kids they were okay yeah of the 360 initial accusations only 12 of them were actually considered strong enough to testify in court mm -hmm. uh, and that was after like the prosecution had whittled down the best witnesses yeah and even those just weren't believed with the recordings. Yeah. And this re results in some problems as well with social workers talking to each other, basically telling each other, don't record the testimony. People don't believe it when they see it. Just take notes. They believe the notes, which is a problem. Yeah. But again, it's being done out of a, a place of trying to protect these kids. Yeah. Uh, very bad methodology. Very understandable motivation. Yeah. This is textbook moral panic. Yeah. The other thing that comes out over the course of the 80s is a wider public understanding of the vulnerability and reliability of child witnesses, you know, mainly out of this trial, but out of so many others. As we talked about before, kids kind of say what they think that you want them to hear. Mm -hmm. um, there's also something known as false memory syndrome. You can be, con you can be convinced to remember something that never happened. Yeah. Anyone can. It yeah. is a, it is a, a thing that has to do with having a human brain um kids are especially susceptible to it and when you bring things into uh, an interrogation such as hypnosis um which was being used to try and extract what were considered repressed memories from these children you can accidentally implant memories in their minds yeah there was this whole concept of you know repressed memories and being able to retrieve repressed memories that was very popular in the 80s and kind of where the psychology sits on that one is that, yes, sometimes you can lose your memory due to psychological trauma. There isn't a lot that a therapist can do to retrieve a memory in a way that you can't prove that it's uh, uh, not a false memory. Right, right. There's virtually no difference between a retrieved memory and a false memory. The only thing that can differentiate the two of those is corroborating evidence outside of testimony. Mm -hmm. Memory is uh, an extremely plastic thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it's a really th important thing for people to be aware of just in, in general, in life. Yeah. But especially when it comes to something like this, it's very easy to um, unintentionally manipulate someone into remembering something that they don't. This didn't just happen to kids. There were a lot of adults who went to therapy during the 80s and saw very well-meaning therapists who uh, attempted to help them retrieve repressed memories and ended up implanting memories accidentally. And this is something that uh, ruined lives, ruined families. Uh, and again, all from a place of uh, best intentions, but that doesn't necessarily always help things. Yeah. There were more than 3,000 cases of adults in the United States retrieving, uh, and I'm using air quotes, memories of activities to do with uh, satanic cults in their childhood. Interestingly enough, the majority of them uh, were retrieved by just 16 therapists. Wow. This goes to show that, you know, intentionally or not, um, these people were very dedicated to trying to find this phenomenon and you know it left a trail yeah there's a lot of stuff that's going to come up in the field of psychology 
out of all of this. Um, and it's, it's really a shame that there are a lot of people who were kind of the guinea pigs that, you know, helped the, the field realize that we need to be really careful with some of the tools at our disposal because, uh, the mind is a slightly more fragile thing than I think we realized. Mm -hmm. Memory is a far more fragile thing than we realized. Yeah. And if you're not careful, you can, you can do bad. Yeah. You can really do some damage. Numerous books come out discrediting Michelle remembers between 1990 and 1995. Um, there's a few very problematic things about the book. Um, some of the attempts to discredit it come in the form of character witnesses, people who say that they knew Michelle's mother and that she was a lovely woman and would never do anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's not something necessarily to discredit anything. No. That's a thing that's said about all sorts of people who do terrible things. Yeah. Um, the things that are much more convincing are like very major... Uh, easily confirmed things about her story that do not match up. Uh, she claims at one point that she was part of an 81 day long ritual. Uh, she was at school during those 81 days. Like that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, like very easily falsifiable. Like yeah. there's records of her attendance. She took tests. There are, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like she was there. Um, she also claimed that in one of these uh, rituals, somebody uh, basically cut off their middle finger uh, as sort of a sacrifice kind of thing. Um, they couldn't find anyone in the neighborhood. Uh, they couldn't find anyone who remembered anyone in the neighborhood missing that finger. Mm -hmm. There was, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing to indicate that. That's yeah. a pretty memorable thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, I'm not going to go into every single point that refutes the book, but there's a lot of issues there. Yeah. Um, there's also the issue, uh, that, a lot of the sort of very specific beats about the rituals had a lot in common with um, uh, rituals that were common to an area of Africa that Pazder had spent a lot of time working in. Okay, yeah. Yep. Also, um, Pazder and Smith had both divorced their spouses and married each other. Oh. Which is kind of a no-no for the therapist-client um, relationship. Yeah, pretty sure that's uh, not allowed. That's kind of not allowed. It really speaks to... I mean, be, besides like the, the legality of the whole thing, it, it really speaks to a level of involvement between the two of them that is not exactly healthy with uh, with a therapist. Mm -hmm. um, no, don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's not good. Yeah. By about 1995, kind of public opinion about this whole thing has pretty much turned against the idea that there is some sort of cult. It's not an idea that ever really completely goes away because that's not the type of idea that ever goes away. Iterations of that will pop up forever. Yeah. There were real cases of child abuse that came out of some of these uh, investigations. That's a good thing, obviously. What maybe wasn't necessarily a good thing and what it was often criticized for, um, there's specifically a high-profile case in Britain, was people basically going, why are we trying to turn this into um, hunting down a satanic cult? Children are being hurt. Like, let's not lose the the threat here. Yeah. Um, let's stick to the facts. It's this idea that, like, people were very worried that maybe some very real stuff had slipped between the cracks because uh, the, the general push of this whole thing through the media, through, uh, you know, sort of folk narrative was so focused on this like worldwide conspiracy that it kind of ignores the fact that sometimes people are just terrible people and bad things happen. And that's the stuff that needs to be focused on. Right. 
social workers do very much reorient towards that stance. They lose this whole, we have to protect people from a worldwide conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And they go back to worrying about the kids. Yeah. And again, it wasn't every social worker that was working this way. Of course, I I keep qualifying that, but it's, it's important. It's not every single person was on this train. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no allegation specifying Satanism was ever substantiated. Obviously, there was a 1996 meta investigation by the government, uh, by the US government into more than 12,000 allegations of Satanism in one form or another, found zero corroborating evidence. Lots of testimony, but you, like, given the the issues that we've talked about with, you know, recovering memories, which was yeah. usually where this testimony comes from, uh, you can't really hang on to that. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, testimony was like objectively bad. What's more, people would tend to change their stories when problems with their testimony was pointed out. Uh, I was reading one case where somebody was talking about seeing a cult uh, cremate a body in a bonfire in the backyard. And investigators basically pointed out like that you you need like an industrial furnace to cremate a body. Like that's not how that works. And the next time they were interviewed, they were telling a story about this ritual taking place in a factory that had an industrial furnace, right? Like they, they were, they, what happens is you try so hard to make reality fit the memories that you have that sometimes the memories themselves change to fit it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of really kind of sad and tricky stuff going on in these in these people's heads. Uh, there there were even cases, honestly, of of people reporting uh, post traumatic stress disorder as a result of the false memories that were implanted after they finally realized that they were false, because yeah. that is a traumatic experience. Yeah, no kidding. Um, of of not really understanding what's real and what's not, and again, it's it's that question that we started off with, which is is this worth it? Yeah. There's some good stuff that comes out of it. For example, uh, the way that children are treated in criminal investigations and in um, courtroom settings. There's a lot of rules that are put in place in terms of like what you're allowed to ask children, how you're allowed to ask children these things, who's allowed to do investigations with children, um, allowing children to appear on the witness stand via video link rather than having to actually be in the same room as uh, um, people they're uh, testifying against. Those are all very good uh, uh, developments. Yeah, yeah. And so to call this all like a really bad thing, I think is a misunderstanding of what exactly happens here, which is sort of a societal awakening to the fact that, you know, child abuse is a real problem and we have to do something about it. But like how to both reconcile that with the idea of, you know, your community and how to best protect those children. Yeah. Um, That's all a very tricky process to go through and yeah. the fact that it results in something so outlandish i don't think is that surprising we often uh would prefer to believe something outlandish over something kind of mundane, mundane but also yeah. evil um so yeah it's it's a it's a tricky thing um there were a few cases that seem to have some satanic links like there was specifically a, a murder in mexico where 12 people were murdered by a, a gang that were then kind of laid out in a it, Basically, they were inspired by the horror film The Believers, and investigators took that as a sign of like actual satanic cult activity. And you know, it, it was—I mean, it was down to you know teens drawing pentagrams on bridges, and yeah. investigators saying, "Well, this is obviously uh, evidence of a satanic cult at work." Which, like, come on! Like, if that was evidence, then like, do you know how many Nazis there are at our yeah. high school? Like. Yeah. I saw so many backwards swastikas at that place. Yeah. 
so many lockers. Yeah. Like, kids just do stuff. And, and those were all being taken very seriously. Yeah. There's one more thing that I, I, I didn't really mention, which is, is this idea of confirmation bias, this idea of looking for information that fits an idea you already have in your head yeah. and trying to fit it all into a cohesive narrative. It's, again, a very, very human thing. You do it. I do it. Every single person does it to some extent. Yeah. And it happens more when it's an emotionally charged situation. And this absolutely fits that bill. These investigators were out looking for evidence of a satanic cult that they believed existed. Yeah. And they found that evidence uh, to their own satisfaction. Yeah. Anything that fits the bill for them, they're going to take. Yeah. This wasn't located just in the United States. Canada went through the same thing. The, uh, the UK went through the same thing. Australia, New Zealand, basically the entire English speaking world each had some version of this and they each went through some very painful court proceedings of people who did nothing wrong, but were, uh, you know, to some extent affected by, uh, uh, testimony that was extremely unreliable. There was also plenty of very, uh, tragic cases that were, uh, inevitably turned up along the way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that it kind of just sort of dies off everyone kind of just accepts that well no there aren't really satanists yeah uh we tried very hard to find this evidence and it's not there the main pieces of evidence have been discredited mm. um i don't think this is a thing anymore yeah and it's just gone yeah and not that long ago no and it, i mean it probably grows out with because it's such a, a long amount of time mm -hmm. that all of this takes place over so i'm sure some to some extent, it grows out with, you know, the people who are most concerned growing out of that as well. Of course. Um, but definitely the fact that there was zero evidence is mm -hmm. a strong case. Yeah. And I, I think I think the whole thing really puts some of the sillier bits into perspective for me, the, the back masking and the D&D yeah. &D and stuff like that. I, I never got the complaint against D&D, &D, but... It's it's one thing to look at D and D now and go, this is a this is a game that I play with my friends and it's fun. And it's another thing to go. So the guy on the news is telling me that there's a satanic cult out there, recruiting people through this game, and your kids could be next. You know what, guys? You're playing Monopoly today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, maybe it's crazy. Maybe it's not true. Why would you take that risk? And I mean, it's like the whole don't let your kids play with a Ouija board. Thing, yeah. 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 Oh, and, and yeah, that's, that's absolutely tied up in some of this stuff, right? It's harmless, but you know, it's creepy and it gets them in that mindset and sure. you know, yep. let's not risk it. Let's not risk what it. If. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people and their kids, people and anyone vulnerable, of yep. course, we're hardwired to be as careful as possible with all of yeah. that. Yeah. So that, uh, I think is, the satanic panic mm -hmm. which is it ended up being a lot more serious than i was expecting yeah a lot scarier than i was expecting yeah i sort of expected a lot of this to be like wow i can't believe people believed all of this stuff yeah i definitely thought it was going to be a lot more laughable but it's mm -hmm. i mean obviously but it was way darker than i thought yeah and and yeah no parts of it absolutely still are kind of kind of laughable yeah. but yeah no I, I mean the the underlying anxiety yeah. there is is extremely relatable yeah and um i think a great example of how like no some like we we can't pretend that 
these sort of emotional and, and sometimes very primal drives aren't part of what we make decisions around, you know, like they absolutely are. Yeah. Like the idea that there were like numerous uh, government investigations into Dungeons and Dragons and also backwards music. Yeah. You know, it, it, all these investigations into daycare. It, it, it makes me, you know, I, I also really wonder because it's so recent about some of the ramifications of that, you know, what was um, the effect on um, parents' willingness to take kids to uh, daycare in the English-speaking world versus, you know, other parts of Europe or, or Asia, mm-hmm. um, you know, how how much more concerned are people about that even to this day? And what the, are the ripple effects? Yeah, and the people who, you know, were children at the time, mm-hmm. seeing their parents have that fear and then growing up and now maybe having their own kids and are in the position where they're making the decision mm-hmm. to send their kid to preschool or not and whether that has like you said, the ripple effect of yeah. that. And and you can you can continue extrapolating this out as far yeah. as you want. You can get into, you know, helicopter parenting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we could go all day on that stuff and I'm I'm choosing not to. We're gonna try and keep this as historical as possible. But mm-hmm. like I I I think it's worth really contemplating um what sorts of very unintended effects this concern has had on our society lasting to this day. Because you know, people in the middle of this weren't going, oh, this has something to do with the rise of professional psychology and also um, the the standardized establishment of child protective services. Yeah. They were going, I heard there are Satanists on the news. And my kid could be next. And my kid could be next. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And there are things happening right now that in 50 or 100 years, people will look back and go, obviously, this is a consequence of X. Yeah. And, you know, people people sure did act weird, but it's because of this. And, yeah. and we just were too close to it. Yeah, yeah. That's the reason we pick like a 20 year rule in, in history, which oftentimes is still too close. Yeah. That you just need that perspective to see some of these these bigger overarching causes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not possible without that distance. Yeah. So anyways, um, yeah, very dark, very interesting though. Yeah. Super interesting. It it, kind of sheds a light on a number of things that I've I've always sort of wondered about that make a lot more sense to me now. Yeah. Uh, any final comments, any questions on something that I brushed past too quickly, anything like that? No, I I think that was pretty much it. It's just, it is very, very interesting. Like there's so much more to it than you necessarily first realize Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep definitely well i'm happy to report that dungeons dragons is in fact safe to play uh preschools in general are mostly just there for looking after your kids yep and um yeah the rock music it's good stuff it's good stuff (laughs) Keep on rocking. <laughs> Keep on rocking. I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, today. anytime. People are often limited by their biology in ways that are hard for us to see from the inside. Cognitive biases shape our thinking and decision making, emotions color our decisions, and that's very much okay. In fact, I would argue it's essential. But when these forces take over the course of social consensus in ways that shape policy and government, the outcomes can be very unpredictable. The satanic panic is a great example of just how complex a phenomenon this is. 
it caused both help and harm, came from the most understandable instincts, lifted the curtain to show our tribalism, and it all stemmed from a perceived threat that never really existed, at least not in the specific iteration that people feared. The effects remain to this day. Not everything in history is subject to such chaos, but we need to be prepared to accept that some moments are very human, with all the strengths and limitations that that implies. I'm back from vacation now and feeling quite refreshed, but I haven't quite nailed down what the next topic is going to be. I should be back on track soon, though, and I should know it in a couple days. I can assure you, however, that it will be going up on June 1st, which, by the way, is the show's fourth anniversary. So I'll see you all then. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.